Hello, and welcome to Decision Points, the U.S.-Israel relationship. My name is David Murkowski, the Ziegler Distinguished Fellow at the Washington Institute and Director of the Project on Arab-Israel Relations, and I'm excited to go on this journey through history with you. On today's episode, we will discuss one of the toughest issues in the world, namely efforts by the U.S. to reconcile the Zionist National Movement, or Israel, and the Palestinian National Movement. This conflict has gone on for a century. The U.N. made an effort in 1947 for each side to accept half a loaf and partition the land. The Zionist movement accepted, but the Palestinians viewed the Zionists as fundamentally illegitimate and spurned partition. Towards the end of the 20th century, it would be the U.S. that would be the mediator, not the U.N. President Jimmy Carter tried at Camp David in 1979. Hear more in Episode 6 about this. By the late 1980s and early 1990s, regional and global power dynamics were changing. With the Palestinian Intifada in 1987-1988, the Jordanians washed their hands of the Palestinian issue. Shortly thereafter, the end of the Cold War and the dissolution of the Eastern Bloc meant that the Palestine Liberation Organization, known as the PLO, lost a significant ally, as the USSR had championed the Palestinian cause. In the first Gulf War of 1991, Yasser Arafat, the leader of the PLO, backed Saddam Hussein of Iraq. This move angered many Arab states, especially in the Gulf, that had backed the Palestinian cause, and it was another loss, a significant one for the Palestinians. Arafat himself became persona non grata in some Gulf states. In 1992, Yitzhak Rabin had won as Prime Minister of Israel, returning to the post he had held in the mid-1970s. It should be recalled that Rabin was the winning general of the Six-Day War of 1967, but he identified the issue of the future of the territories he won as getting to the heart of an Israeli identity crisis. It could not keep all the territories it had won in that war while being both a Jewish and democratic state. Rabin also saw the Iranian nuclear threat as part of Israel's future security situation. He wanted to make sure that the Palestinian issue was off the table in the Middle East so Israel could better handle the Iranian threats. He knew Israel was in a strong position, given its alliance with the United States, which had just been victorious in the Cold War. These feelings led to secret negotiations with the PLO in Oslo and what became known as the Oslo Peace Accords of 1993. These talks were significant because they marked Israel's recognition of a Palestinian nationalist movement. The handshake on the White House lawn between Rabin and Arafat was filled with angst for Rabin. After all, Rabin viewed Arafat as an arch-terrorist, and also, it should be said, Arafat saw Rabin as a symbol of Israeli military control over Palestinian aspirations. Today, the leadership of Israel and the Palestine Liberation Organization will sign a declaration of principles on interim Palestinian self-government. It charts a course toward reconciliation between two peoples who have both known the bitterness of exile. Now both pledge to put old sorrows and antagonisms behind them and to work for a shared future shaped by the values of the Torah, the Quran, and the Bible. The Oslo process was a risk for both Israelis and Palestinians. For Israel, the primary risk was that it would be ceding tangible territory to its enemy for the intangible hope of peace. Would this leave Israel more secure or more vulnerable? 
For the Palestinians, the risk was a gradualist process without a guarantee of a negotiated endgame on the core issues known as final status. This meant uncertainty about the Jewish settlement movement in the West Bank. Throughout the Oslo process, the U.S. saw Israel as a strategic partner, and President Bill Clinton saw his role as minimizing the risks for Israel and Rabin while providing the PLO with something that it desperately needed, legitimacy. These negotiations would be one of the most pivotal moments of the peace process. Rabin sacrificed more than just political capital for these efforts. He lost his life for them to an assassin's bullet at a peace rally in Tel Aviv in November 1995. A decade later, another pivotal decision on the Israeli-Palestinian peace process occurred under the leadership of Ariel Sharon. The backdrop was the second Palestinian Intifada, which began in the year 2000. Particularly, a key moment occurred in 2003 with the resignation of Mahmoud Abbas as Arafat's deputy or prime minister. Israeli officials hoped that Abbas would be a moderating force in the Palestinian Authority. His resignation demonstrated that there was no room for negotiations. Sharon needed to decide whether to give up on the hope for an alternative to ongoing violence known as the Intifada or try something new. He chose to pull out 8,000 settlers from Gaza who were guarded by thousands of Israeli soldiers in an area where there were close to 2 million Palestinians. Gaza disengagement was not easy for Sharon. After all, he was the architect of the settlement movement. But the settlement movement was different than what he envisaged in the 70s. What animated the settlers was the idea of biblical patrimony. However, Sharon viewed the settlements in Gaza as a hedge on Egyptian military thrusts from the Sinai into Israel. This may have made sense in the 1970s, but not once there was an Egyptian-Israeli peace agreement in 1979, and the Sinai was essentially demilitarized. There was nothing to hedge. So in December 2003, Sharon proposed a disengagement plan, which was passed in 2005. To discuss these key decision moments between the U.S., Israel, and the Palestinians, we are going to have two interviews, one with former Israeli Foreign Minister Tzipi Livni and the other with Ambassador Dennis Ross. Tzipi Livni has served as Foreign Minister, Justice Minister, Opposition Leader, and Head of the Israeli Negotiating Team during the 2013-2014 Kerry Initiative Peace Talks. She is currently a fellow at the Belfer Center at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. Dennis Ross is my colleague at the Washington Institute and co-author with me of Be Strong and of Good Courage, How Israel's Most Important Leader Shaped Its Destiny. He has served in multiple U.S. administrations, including as the Middle East Envoy and Chief Negotiator in both the H.W. Bush and Clinton administrations. So I'm delighted to talk to both of them. I'll begin with Sippy. Sippy, it's a delight to be with you today. Thank you. So you've had an amazing career and being in Israel at the key moments, at, at making key decisions for the future of, of your country. Your father is a key figure, and I write about Eitan Livni. Was it difficult in talking to your parents about your journey? I decided to join politics in 1995. The decision was a one-day decision, Yom Kippur decision. And it was just a few weeks before the assassination of Prime Minister Rabin when the state of Israel and the Israeli society was split between two different camps. One was 
The camp that uh, my parents belonged to called itself the camp of the land of Israel, talking about the rights of the Jewish people, saying that we should not give even an inch of the land. And on the other side, there was another camp that called himself the Camp of Peace. It was after the Oslo Agreement, believing that the new Middle East is going to fall on our shoulders. And I felt that my voice is not being heard because I believe in the rights of the Jewish people on the entire land, but yet I believe that we need to divide it. And on the other hand, I had my own criticism on Oslo Agreement that postponed all the core issues to the end or that didn't solve the key issues and the core issues. And therefore, I felt that this is the right moment for me to join politics, saying, yes, Oslo Agreement was uh, decided by and uh, signed by a legitimate government in Israel that was elected by a democratic process. But I do believe that we need to negotiate in order to find a way to end the conflict. So... This was my decision since day one, and I refer to it even in my first interview in 1995. My father was not alive when, when I joined politics, and I think that him and I, we didn't even dreamt about the idea that I would join politics. But this was the decision, so I joined Likud, and before joining Likud, Netanyahu was the head of the chairperson of Likud, and I didn't know him. But I had a discussion with a very close friend of his, uh, one of his uh, close advisors. And I said, listen, I'm going to join politics. I do believe that we should uh, continue, adapt Oslo Agreement, but negotiate in a manner that uh, would um, end the conflict. I was born in Likud, but I would like to know that joining Likud, the meaning is that my ideas will be part of the ideas of the Likud. And these were the days in which Netanyahu was not willing to say that he accept Oslo Agreement. And this close advisor said to me, listen, in the end, he would need to adapt it. So I decided to join Likud and to do it within Likud. Now, my mother, and she was a great warrior in the Irgun, and she believed in greater Israel, and until the age of 80, she used to go to Judea and Samaria and, uh, you know, to contribute to Hebron. And one day I was, after one of my interviews, I was speaking about Palestinian state as part of the solution, and she called me and she said, Sipi, I uh, listen to what you say, I hear you, it hurts me. But you know what? I see young people, young Israelis, uh, living for America. And uh, we didn't fight to establish a state just for us, the old guys. So we uh, did our part. Now it's your decision. Oh, very interesting. Very interesting. You mentioned Oslo, and sometimes Oslo is used as a metaphor for people on the right in Israel to attack it for its shortcomings. And yet it is also a metaphor for the idea of partition. So what lessons do you take from Oslo? How do you think it will be remembered? How will Yitzhak Rabin be remembered in the context of the agreement? You know, I didn't vote for Yitzhak Rabin at the time. I had my own criticism on Oslo agreement, but it was not against the partition. You know, as a lawyer, I said I would not have giving a client of mine the possibility to sell his second-hand apartment and to give the keys of the apartment without getting the full consideration. And Oslo Agreement was not really an agreement. It was more a memorandum of understanding. 
And therefore, I wanted to negotiate in a different manner to solve or to deal with all the core issues and uh, to give an answer to all the core issues. But now looking uh, backwards after different attempts to solve the conflict, I think that looking at these two national movements, the Zionist movement that created the State of Israel and later Israel and the Palestinian national movement, I think that Oslo was a moment in time in which they touched and decide to recognize one the other and to move forward together. And unfortunately, since that moment, we didn't reach another moment in the same understanding. But I also believe that those that were completely against, they were those that were against Oslo Agreement because of the idea of partition. Others criticized it for other reasons. But I think that Oslo portrayed the path that we cannot and nobody can reverse I hope not anyway, reverse, uh, you know, the clock or uh, rewind the clock or go back to that moment in history. Since that day, even without reaching the moment of finalizing all the core issues, I think that since that day, Israel walked in accordance to this idea by building the security wall, by trying to achieve peace based on two states for two peoples. We moved forward. I hope that nobody will take us backwards. You were one of the closest people to Ariel Sharon during the Gaza disengagement, so your insights, I'm sure, will be fascinating. Seeing Ariel Sharon up close, how did he get to this decision point of pulling out of Gaza, and what lessons did you learn from him about leadership? And if you could say something about the U.S. role at this time, between 2003 and 2005? I think that what happened to Ariel Sharon, you know, he said it in his words, what you see from one side, you cannot see from the other side, or basically what, what you see when you sit on uh, the chair of prime minister, you cannot see when you are in the opposition. What you see from here, you can't see from there, he would say. Exactly. This is what he used to say. And I hope that those that are pretending or want to take uh, those running for office would understand that in the end, when you uh, sit on the chair or being the prime minister of the state of Israel, you need to take in consideration the situation, the future of your country. And Arik Sharon used to say to me, and he said it to me in our last meeting, he said, I am worried about the future of the Jewish people. And therefore, I saw him at first, you know, he said during the Second Intifada that uh, we would negotiate just after we would have seven days of complete um, peace and quiet without terror. And later, I saw him adapting the roadmap, which was quite difficult for him to adapt. But yet... I remember the days it was very difficult for him even to accept the idea of division, of building the the fence or the wall. He didn't even want to hear about it. And since he was a soldier, you know, he was talking about security. He knew every piece of land between the river and the sea. And I think that he reached a point in which he understood that since Gaza is not going to be part of the state of Israel in the future, so what's the use of keeping it? 
And uh, paying the price, people do not remember. People are talking about terror coming now from Gaza, and rightly so, but yet we faced terror when our soldiers were there, when the settlements were there. And what I learned from him was that, one, he was willing to change his mind, but secondly, and this is the most important, since he decided to do so, I mean, he said that, no Israelis, no Jews would be in Gaza Strip until the end of 2005. And I said, wow, it's here and now. This is such a complicated operation. But since he decided to do so, he pushed everybody to do it in accordance to the timeline that he put on the table. And he watched this very closely. Every week we had a meeting and with the army coming, explaining how far they moved, with everybody to organize all this, to orchestrate all this operation. And it was very difficult for him because the settlers were very close to him. He supported this movement. But since he decided to do so, and he got, I mean, they cursed him. Did that hurt him? I mean, you saw him very close. Yes, yes. And I remember... The first meeting during the disengagement with settlers, I organized it. I was the minister of justice there, and I had quiet, discreet meetings with the settlers. I told them, listen, I supported the disengagement. I believe that this is the right thing to do, but I believe that as a state, as a country, we need to take care of your future and try to minimize the damage that you are facing. So altogether, we organized what we call a community villages so they would move from one place to the other, but with their own communities to a new uh, village inside Israel. So in one of the meetings, I asked them, are they willing to meet uh, the prime minister, to meet Arik Sharon? And when I got the positive answer... I arranged this meeting. It was the first meeting between them. I participated in the meeting. And it was so tough and emotional. And, uh, well, I can say that um, some of us had the tears in our hearts listening to one speaking about the bat mitzvah of his daughter and now they need to do it elsewhere. And the other about uh, his children and I remember one saying, I'm willing to leave, but uh, the only thing that would uh, make it easier for me to leave is if the United States would release Pollard. It was very personal and emotional meeting. They understood that we passed the moment of no return, but they wanted to share with him how they feel. And Arik Sharon used to have meetings, and in this meeting to enter into all the details especially those that uh, were related to those that were the farmers there, about the cows, how they would move the cows from one place to the other, how they will be there and where they will be their houses. And it was an unbelievable project, thinking about it in a very short period of time. What can you say about the U.S. role during that period? How important was the U.S. to Sharon's calculations that he coordinated with Condi Rice and the Bush administration. How significant 
was that for him? You know, when I heard about the disengagement, I said that I fear that the outcome of the disengagement would be that Hamas would take it for granted that while they are using terror, Hamas and the Palestinians, that while they are using terror, Israel is withdrawing. Because in the end, we withdraw, we pulled out our forces, dismantled the settlements. And therefore, I said to Arik Sharon, that I would support it if we would get from the United States an understanding that even though we are pulling our forces out and um, withdrawing from Gaza Strip, we are gaining something political and the time doesn't work for the Palestinians or for their uh, using terror. And um, what I said is that there's a need to reach an understanding with the U.S. administration saying that the idea of two states for two peoples means that each state gives an answer to national aspiration of different peoples. And therefore, as Israel is the Jewish state, and we absorb Jews who came from all over the world to Israel. And by definition, Israel is the home for every Jew who lives outside of Israel. Therefore, the establishment of the Palestinian state is the answer for the aspiration of the Palestinians wherever they are those who live in the territories and those who live in refugee camps. And therefore, this is the answer for what the Palestinians call the right of return. And Arik Sharon gave me the possibility to work with it, to work on it with uh, Condi Rice. I, I still have, you know, the letters uh, that I wrote. And for her, it was not the obvious at first. So I had a meeting with her speaking about my parents, as I, as I shared with you. And they said, listen, we are going to give up part of the land because we believe that uh, this is the only way to keep Israel as a Jewish democratic state with equal rights to all its citizens, but with a Jewish majority. And therefore, we cannot accept claim of return of refugees because the idea is not just to establish another state in the Middle East. We have enough of those. The idea is to end the conflict based on, on an understanding that each state is an answer to different peoples. And I remember the day in which I uh, was uh, on television giving an interview and Arik Sharon was in Washington, had a, a meeting with uh, President Bush. And then uh, we got the letter saying that the establishment of the Palestinian state is the answer for refugees, also saying that the future border would take in consideration the situation on the ground and the civil population centers, what we call blocks of settlements. And when I heard it, I said on, on TV, I was asked, okay, do you support it? And say, now I can support it. And Arik Sharon called me from uh, Washington and he said, do you see your fingerprint on Bush letter? And I say, yes. And I just announced that I support it. So, um, it was quite difficult to get the approval of Likud members. And later, another contrib contribution of mine to the process is that three ministers of Likud, Benjamin Netanyahu, Limor Livnat, and Silvan Shalom, were not willing to support the plan. And Arik Sharon didn't have a majority in the government. So he decided to fire Lieberman and other ministers from the government. And I say, wait, I will try and convince them. And I had a meeting with the three of them, few meetings, and I asked, okay, what is your problem? Do you really believe that uh, Gaza would be part of Israel in the future? They said, no, but we cannot support, we cannot vote for evacuation of settlements. I said, okay, 
So let's do the following. Let's have a government decision saying that we all support the idea of this engagement. And when we would reach the point of evacuation of settlements, we would have a, another vote. And you can oppose this vote later. So they agreed. And this is why Netanyahu and the three of them also supported the disengagement. But when we reached the evacuation of settlements, uh, Netanyahu and Likud decided to quit the government. So my contribution was also by getting the support of Likud ministers to the disengagement plan. Very interesting. I really want to thank you for spending time with us and wish you much success in the future. Thank you very much. Thank you, David. Dennis, it's a delight for me personally that you're with me in the studio. Given our longtime friendship and that, that we've done two books together, including the most recent one, Be Strong and of Good Courage. So we're looking at some of the big decisions in our book that were done for peace in recent decades. So maybe tell us a little bit from your perspective about the differences between the leaders. With Rabin and Sharon, they never questioned whether they had a right to be there. They were born in Palestine. They knew no other state. Their rights were a function of having come from there. And so for them, this need to somehow prove the legitimacy was not a need at all. They fought for the state. They founded the state. They were committed as a result. So they had more in common, not only because of their military background, but because they were also sabras. They were born there. The Ben-Gurion and Begin, this emphasis in some ways with the philosophical underpinnings of the state was critical for them in a way, not surprisingly, that wasn't critical for two guys who spent their life in the military. So I would say... That represents one kind of both similarity and difference. I would say what bound all of them, by the way, was not their ideology, but their view of their responsibilities. They had a profound sense of the responsibilities they had as the leader. It's striking to me how similar they were in terms of looking at what a prime minister had to do, a prime minister of Israel had to do. Sharon talked about the solitude of the leader, meaning big decisions were the leaders alone. He bore the weight of history when he made those. He was responsible for making decisions, but also responsible for the consequences of the decisions. With Sharon, the guy who built the settlements, when he gives this extraordinarily poignant speech to the Knesset to explain why he's doing this, and he says, it's the hardest thing I've ever had to do. I've ordered the forces who were under me into battles knowing many wouldn't return. I'm the one who then talked to their families, to their parents to explain this. And this is harder, not because those weren't painful decisions, but because I sent the people there. I, you spent your lives there. You went through life cycle events there. I sent you there. But I have a responsibility to the state, and that comes first. With Rabin, Rabin looked at everyone who was in the IDF as if they were his own grandson. Uh, he said that. He would say, yes, I care about my own grandson, but I care about everyone and he always said, and I, I know you heard him say this and I heard him say this, he always had to be able to look in the face of the parents of those who had lost their kids and be able to say to him, I did everything I could so this wouldn't be necessary. So now let's bring you to the early 90s. And the Cold War is just ending. The Gulf War has just ended. The U.S. has defeated Saddam Hussein. And you were then working for George H.W. Bush and 
and you know this period, and all of a sudden Rabin is elected in 1992, the person who won the Six-Day War of 1967, now he has to deal with what to do with the future of these territories that have not yet been resolved. In earlier episodes, we talked about the Egypt-Israel Peace Treaty, but there is the question of what to do on the Palestinian issue, and there seems to be this paradox that goes like this. If you're strong, you don't need to compromise. And if you're weak, you can't afford to compromise. When you think of the greatness of Rabin, and and you work with him, and I covered him as a journalist for years, when you think of that, that Rabin was able to cut through that conundrum, so to speak, what gave him that strength to say, you make a deal precisely when you're at the peak of your strength? What did it was his strategic vision. Rabin was the most analytical person as a leader that I ever worked with. Everything was A, B, C, D. He had an extremely logical mind. He worked things through, and once he did, then basically he was comfortable with his decision, even if it meant taking on political forces that were very potent. So in his case, he goes through a process over time. The first thing is that he feels, he actually says when he's prime minister the first time, we're not strong enough yet. We need at least another five years. It was too close to the 73 war, too close to the time of the the oil boycott, too close to the time when the Arabs might think that they were strong and Israel was weak, and Israeli concessions at that point would be read the wrong way in his mind. Now, when he becomes prime minister the second time, he looks not at Israel being weak, he looks at Israel being strong. The most significant Arab threat, meaning the Iraqis, have been defeated. The Iranians are weak because they fought in an eight-and-a-half-year war. The world is undergoing a geopolitical tsunami. Borders are disappearing. There's no longer a Cold War. He sees all this, and he says, this is a moment of strength, but the moment won't last. And while we're strong, we have to see what we can do. So his analysis led him to say in the 70s when he's first prime minister, we're not strong enough to be able to make the kind of concessions that in fact, will make peace possible because those concessions will be misread. They'll be seen as a source of weakness. Later on, when Israel's strong, he understands you use strength for a reason. From a very early time, he has the attitude that the territory is a lever for the Israelis. It is a card that can be given up, but you have to get something that makes it worthy to give it up. It's an iconic moment of the 20th century, being at the White House lawn as you were, and to see Rabin's face when he shook Yasser Arafat's hand. It seems to me the angst of that face captured the moral center of the moment. So can you capture what that meant to him? There's probably no American that has spent more time with Yitzhak Rabin one-on-one than you have. First of all, I should say he was the most honest person I ever dealt with. And certainly he's the only leader who ever said to me that I was right and he was wrong. I can tell you Nobody else who was a leader ever said that to me. But he was intellectually honest. So if you had an argument with him and it turned out that reality showed that he was wrong, he would come back and he would tell you. The honesty extended even to that, number one. Number two, because he was completely honest with himself, he would always look at the way things were, not as he wanted them to be. And he could create this interesting separation. He says that at one point, look, as a private citizen who lives on Ravashi Street, I would never shake the hand of Arafat. But I wasn't a private citizen. I was the prime minister of Israel. We're not ostriches. We couldn't put our head in the sand and pretend that they didn't exist and that we didn't have to deal with them if we wanted to try to end the conflict and preserve who we were. 
So it was enormously difficult for him. But I have to say that on that day, I was also struck by two things. I was struck by how emotionally difficult it was for him. You have this iconic photograph of Clinton literally using his size to envelop the two of them and bring them together for the handshake. And for Rabin, it's like having teeth pulled to have to do it, but he'll do it. But then Rabin gives a speech that is an amazing speech where he reaches out to the Palestinians and he connects to their pain. And Arafat has no problem shaking hands. He's ready to kiss everybody, to hug everybody. And he gives an awful speech. He gives a speech only to his base. The contrast between the two was so striking that day because Rabin was, in a sense, having to wrestle with what his emotions were. But he could put them aside and do, in his mind, what was necessary. And he did. So now let me bring you to another leader, which we write about in our book, a lunch that you had with Ariel Sharon. <laughs> and you, you could talk about what, a, what an amazing eater he was. Prodigious eater. Yeah, yes. I think he had like eight out of the ten shawarma sandwiches he there. But there was a key moment where he really said to you that the leaders that would follow him would be politicians rather than leaders. What did he mean by this? And how do you think that drove his thinking to disengage from Gaza? Yeah, I want to explain the context of the lunch because – I was challenging him not on the principle of withdrawing from Gaza, but doing it without requiring the Palestinians to do anything. I was saying it's not only that you're throwing the keys over the fence and hoping for the best. It's in a sense you're adopting a position that means only Israel has responsibilities, number one, and that shouldn't be the case. The Palestinians have to see they have responsibilities. And number two, you're rewarding the Hamas narrative so they can say violence drove you out. What you would like to see is those Palestinians who negotiate with you, they can be the ones who produce a withdrawal. And his response to me was very poignant. He said, I cannot make our future dependent on their irresponsibility. What he was saying is, if I do what you say and they don't assume any responsibilities, then I'm stuck. I'm trapped. And that's when he said, and in effect, he was saying, look, I'm from the generation. I'm from the founder's generation. We fought for the state. We lived through the period when it was very fragile. And I won't put it at risk now because of demographics. I won't do that. All my successors are politicians. The implication was not only would they not make big decisions, there was an implication that they might not even recognize what the stakes were. I mean, obviously, he was not a huge fan of his successors. But the point he was making was, I have to do it because I don't trust my successors to be able or willing to do it. And that brings us to the role of the United States. If you had a look at Rabin and Sharon, did they see the role of the U.S. similarly and how important was U.S. reassurances to do what Bill Clinton said was his role, which was to minimize the risks for Israel and the peacemakers? What's, it's a really interesting question because Rabin, from the very beginning, when he's in the IDF, before he becomes a chief of staff, when he's a deputy chief of staff, he comes in 1963 for three days of strategic discussions the State Department, Dean Russ, goes along with it because he wants us to be an alternative to providing any arms to the Israelis. But Rabin sees Israel's future entirely tied up in the relationship with the United States. Perez, who was his rival throughout this whole period, is focused on the French. He's focused on the United States from very early on. He wants to become, when he leaves the military, ambassador to the United States because he thinks it will begin to train him in the area of diplomacy, but also because he puts such a premium on the relationship with the United States. And he describes what his aims are as ambassador to sort of cement this relationship to ensure that the U.S. will become 
the main weapon supplier of the United States, to be sure we're on the same page, Israel and the United States. So for him, this defines him throughout his whole career. It doesn't define Sharon throughout his whole career. Sharon actually adopts a position early on of looking at the U.S. as as being too determined to limit what Israel can do. And he feels the need to create a kind of independence from the U.S. He doesn't like the idea of dependency on the U.S. He will say things when he's in the military and after he leaves the military where he makes it clear we have to reduce our dependency on the United States. And so he very much worried what would his relationship be with the United States, and he was determined to be on the right foot with the United States. And he comes to see the United States at that point very much the way that Rabin does. And the letter he gets from President Bush, the Bush-run letter, which is designed to provide a set of commitments because he's not getting anything from the Palestinians as he withdraws from Gaza. He wants to get compensation, in effect, from the United States. This becomes what's more important to him than anything else, and he thinks it's one of his greatest diplomatic achievements. More than anything else, it tells you how much he changed in terms of his views towards the United States. You and I devoted our professional lives to it. We want a strong U.S.-Israel relationship, but we both want dignity for the Palestinians. And people will read our book and talk and see how the leaders made these very difficult decisions. And people say, well, you know, it's a mixed legacy. Oslo, Gaza disengagement. Sometimes the news is what doesn't happen. Yeah, the so, dog that didn't bark. Right. Yes. So for all the complications, am I right to say that these leaders, Rabin and Sharon, were so pivotal in this period that – it was about the identity of Israel, and they felt that Israel could manage the security challenges. And, you know, you don't want to get into counterfactual history. Well, what if they would have been alive? But I don't know if the good side that to see the Israeli-Palestinian security cooperation, that, yeah. that works today despite a massive political impasse. So, you know, it's hard to do a ledger on Oslo and, and Gaza. But for those people who are listening to this podcast and say, yeah. you guys devote your lives to the peace issue – but, you know, it hasn't been a fairy tale. It has not been a storybook kind of ending. What do you say to those people? Well, first, acknowledge the reality. Second, those who want to criticize Oslo never offered an alternative to it. And it's as if they feel, oh, if we had done nothing, everything would have been just fine. Well, that's also living in a world of make-believe. And the point you made, nobody wants to go back into Gaza. I may have had questions about the way it was done with Sharon. I would have advised doing it differently, but the principle of doing it was exactly right. Make the offer and say, we will get out, but we need you to assume these responsibilities. I wish the U.S. at the time, the Bush administration, had taken advantage of what was an enormous opportunity that was granted them, and they should have gone and brokered this. If Sharon felt he didn't want to do it directly with the Palestinians, then the U.S. should have done it, and we didn't do it. So the point is, could Oslo have been done differently? Of course. But the basic approach was the right approach. And the, the idea of preserving the character and identity of Israel is the right approach. And those who are most critical of it, they basically offer no alternative that would ensure that you preserve the identity of Israel. On the contrary, they try to deny there's a problem. But there is a problem. And Israel will become one state for two people. And the Palestinians in those circumstances will say, fine, one person, one vote. And then that will make BDS look like it's child's play. So there isn't a fairy tale ending here because this is unfortunately a historic conflict where the weight of history bears very heavily on each side, where it'll take a long time for us to resolve the conflict. 
but you have to have an approach that starts with a premise. And they would have acted to ensure that Israel would retain its identity and its character as a Jewish democratic state. They could be different ideologically, but that outcome, that end goal, that was something that they would have husbanded as a treasure, and they wouldn't have allowed anything to threaten it. And the, the policies and the decisions they made were all guided by that principle. I think the reason you and I wrote this book is because we want Israel's leaders today to also be guided by that principle. Exactly. And I hope the listeners get a taste of the book, but you really to understand these four people and their journeys and what drove them, you got to read the book, Be Strong and of Good Courage. And I just want to thank my friend and colleague, Dennis Ross. David, thank you. It's always a pleasure to do anything with you. We just had two fascinating interviews with Ambassador Dennis Ross and former Israeli foreign minister Tzipi Livni. And I think what was common to both of them is this ethos of self-reliance of Zionism, that Zionism was not about being held hostage to events or to another party. These are people whose whole life, whether it's Tzipi Livni, her mother, or Rabin Sharon, they devoted their whole life to the national interest. Doesn't mean they didn't make mistakes, but this sense that ultimately that this ethos of self-reliance required tough decisions, this was for them the essence of why they were in government, not to be just political leaders, but really to be historic leaders. Thank you all very much for listening. Please go to your favorite podcast app, subscribe, rate, and review, and tell your friends. I want to thank all of those who made this podcast possible. Basha Rosenbaum, Richard Myron and Anouk Millet of Earshot Strategies, Paul Woody Woodhull of District Productive on Capitol Hill, Scott Boxer, Rena Wasserstein, and David Patkins.